There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Friday, May 13th. From inside the WTOP newsroom, this is the DMV Download, presented by Steamfitters Local 602. Learn how Steamfitters can benefit your business at steamfitters-602.org. Here's what we've got for you today. Thousands are expected to protest on the mall this weekend in response to the leak of the draft opinion out of the Supreme Court on Roe v.ersus Wade. But as the protests move from outside the court to outside the justices' homes in the suburbs, the question over how to protect them and maintain protester rights turned political. The attorney general directed the U.S. Marshal Service to help ensure the justices' safety. And 100,000 Americans died from opioid overdoses last year. Gary Mandel lost his son to the epidemic and is now working to help raise awareness to treatments and get rid of stigma often associated with addicts. You know, Dad, I wish people would just understand I'm not a bad person. Thanks for joining us. I'm Megan Cloherty. And I'm Luke Garrett. 15,000 people are anticipated to march on the mall for abortion rights this weekend per a national park permit. But as the protests in front of the justices' homes in Fairfax and Montgomery counties continue, the issue over their protection is turning political. Virginia Attorney General Jason Meares and 24 other state attorneys general are joining the governors of Maryland and Virginia in demanding more federal protection for the justices at their homes. WTOP's Neil Augenstein has been covering this and joins us now on Zoom. And Neil, this really gets to the question of when the justice's protection infringes upon the First Amendment rights of protesters, right? So what exactly are the governors and the AGs asking for? Well, this was a letter that starts Dear Attorney General Garland. And what it's asking essentially is for the federal law enforcement to take the lead in providing security to the justices in their homes in our area. Obviously, as you mentioned, the the justices who work here in D.C. also live in the suburbs uh, in most cases. And what Governor Yunkin and Governor Hogan are asking is for, uh, in their words, the Department of Justice to provide appropriate resources to safeguard the justices and enforce the law as it's written. What they're counting on is the federal code, which prohibits people from picketing or protesting with the intent of influencing any judge, juror, witness, or court officer at or near the home of a judge. Mm -hmm. So how did the DOJ respond to this request? The uh, Justice Department sent out a very brief statement uh, after getting the letter from Yunkin and Hogan. It says that Attorney General Garland continues to be briefed on security matters related to the Supreme Court and Supreme Court justices. The Attorney General directed the U.S. Marshal Service to help ensure the justices' safety So the U.S. Marshal Service, which doesn't typically provide security for Supreme Court justices, will be adding their weight to the work that is typically done by the Marshal of the Supreme Court and Supreme Court police. 
And more specifically, we're talking about most recently the home of Justice Samuel Alito in Alexandria. Two other justices live in Fairfax County as well. Do we know how Fairfax County police are dealing with these protests? To my knowledge, the protests that have happened so far have been peaceful, have been brief, have gone the way that law enforcement has not had had to be deeply involved or certainly hasn't had to make any arrests. And, you know, this all brings up a broader question, a legal question of whether citizens' First Amendment rights are being violated here by possibly limiting their access to these, you know, public byways, these streets outside the justices' homes. And you spoke with Fairfax County Police Major Eli Corey, you know, about this balancing effect here of, you know, keeping the peace, but also maintaining people's rights to really speak out. So what did he say about dealing with these protests? Major Eli Corey, who's uh, a member of the department's civil disturbance unit, uh, the officers who typically deal with large gatherings, said that the department's focus is on safety. We don't take sides in gatherings or rallies. Our job to be impartial and safeguard the community. And what makes local police well-suited for this is the relationships that they've built up Having those relationships in the community before there's an event or a gathering really is the key to making Fairfax County a safe jurisdiction to live and work and gather. So whenever there's a large gathering or a protest, they're plugged in. They know who to call. They know who to go to. And protecting the rights of First Amendment protesters is also on the minds of Montgomery County Police, where um, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh uh, both live in Montgomery County. Our own Kate Ryan did a story earlier about, you know, how Montgomery County Police are handling that, spoke with Lieutenant Peter Davidoff. Montgomery County Code and Maryland state law both have prohibitions against picketing a, a particular private residence. But that doesn't mean you can't protest in the neighborhood at large. So he said essentially... You can't block the sidewalk. You got to keep moving. If a delivery guy or somebody wants to get up to the house, they have to be able to do that easily. But you can be there and you can, you know, have your voice heard in a public space. Trying to balance the rights of people to exercise free speech and peaceably assemble with people's right to go about their about their lives, particularly in their private residence where they have a higher expectation of privacy. But when it comes to federal law, that's what the governors are basically looking to to make this request. What do we know about the federal law when it comes to protesting it outside of private home? Some of the analysis that I've read says it is illegal to protest outside a Supreme Court justice's home. And while some would say, but what about First Amendment speech? What about political speech? Apparently, and at least historically, judges have ruled that there should be weight given to maintaining the peace surrounding the the judicial process Hmm. and that influencing uh, the judicial process is such a concern that there should be extra securities provided to make sure that judges and people involved in the legal process aren't unduly influenced. Now, just because Governor Glenn Youngkin says that, and just because I uh, am repeating some analysis that I've read, that doesn't mean that it won't be tested. Perhaps it will be up to, ironically, a judge to determine whether this law is appropriate 
or legal. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think that this is a a question that we may, and I guess likely revisit somewhere down the road, because my guess is that the answer is still to be determined. Well, Neil, thank you for bringing us up to date on this story, and we will surely see it play out in the days and weeks to come. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And despite all these calls for the depolitization of the Supreme Court, the issue of limiting gatherings near the justices' homes is getting political. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin went on Fox News and he pointed to the federal law calling for police to establish a perimeter and arrest protesters. It's on the federal books that, in fact, that's punishable with up to a year in prison. And therefore, Governor Hogan and I have asked the attorney general to do his job and enforce this law. And Fairfax County Board Supervisor Chairman Jeff McKay tells WTOP the Youngkin's request for a perimeter around the justices' homes, it's unconstitutional. We have never had an administration try to dictate the way in which our police department does their operational job in Fairfax County. And without a doubt, uh, we think setting up perimeters and restricting access to public rights of way without a reason, a credible reason, uh, is absolutely a violation of people's constitutional rights. Thousands of protesters are expected to march at rallies in D.C. this weekend. On Saturday, the Bands Off Our Bodies event plans to march around the monuments all the way to the Supreme Court. Be sure to tune in to WTOP, where the Traffic Center will keep you up to date on all the traffic updates and closures. After the break, we talk to a father who lost his son to opioid addiction and is working to destigmatize it about new data that shows this country's dependence on opioids is only getting worse. If you want to save money and grow profits on your next commercial heating, cooling, HVAC, or refrigeration project, go with the men and women of Steamfitters Local 602. You can trust the experience of its workforce, members who have expertise in heating, air conditioning, refrigeration, and process piping to deliver work that's on time and on budget. For a partner you can trust who's mutually focused on your bottom line and to schedule, contact Steamfitters Local 602 at steamfitters-602.org. That's steamfitters-602.org. Steamfitters Local 602, changing lives. Thanks for listening to the DMV Download Podcast. Megan and I do this show all on our own, and we appreciate you making us a part of your day. If you like the show or have a suggestion, let us know by leaving a review or rating the show. Both of those things help us get better and help us grow our audience. Thanks again. The numbers coming out of the CDC paint a grim picture of how the U.S. is navigating the opioid epidemic. Last year, overdose deaths increased by 15% from the previous year. An estimated 107,000 people died from an opioid overdose last year. And if you think this does not relate to your life, you're wrong. Experts say the chances are extremely high that you know someone who has struggled with an opioid addiction, perhaps privately. And we have with us Gary Mendel, who lost his son to an opioid overdose and turned his pain into action, starting Shatterproof, a nonprofit which educates, informs, and fights for addiction to be recognized as a mental illness. Gary, first of all, thank you for joining us Um and we'll start at the beginning here. Tell us your family story and about your son, Brian. Great. Thank, thank you, Megan. For me, I my older son, Brian, um, like many, tried pot and beer his fr- freshman year in high school and became addicted over a period of years, which moved to harder, harder drugs, which moved to opioids. And he went to eight different treatment programs from age 17 to 25, tried his hardest and was really starting to, to, to do better. Um, and then in October 2011, I received the phone call that no parent wants that my son Brian had just died. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
he was 25 years old and he hadn't used a substance in 13 months. And, and Megan, e e equally tragic, it wasn't just addiction that took my son's life. The history on his computer shows he woke up, he woke up that morning, researched suicide notes, wrote a note of his own, lit a candle and took his own life alone. And there's so much embedded in that story of what caused his death. Yeah. So obviously there's nothing worse as a father. And I really struggled with two questions. Um, what could I have done differently as a father? And having to accept what I couldn't change, what could be done to help other families, to spare them of this tragedy? And I took what I thought would be three months away from my business and traveled the country in answer to those, those two questions. And the answer was very clear. Um, and it was just, it destroyed me all over again when I learned that our federal government had provided tens of billions of dollars of funding to, to researchers all across the country. And those in the decades prior to my son dying, and those researchers had successfully used that funding and created wonderful bodies of knowledge that had proven through randomly controlled trials to prevent and treat this disease. Yeah. Except it was all buried in medical journals not being implemented. So it's just very clear that what our nation needed, what our families needed was an organization. Let NIH worry about ending the disease with, with new things. What it needed, our families, our society needed an organization that was just block and tackle. Hmm. Get the research that is embedded in, this, in these medical journals and just get it into use of our society. Right. And that's when I decided to leave my business and form a national nonprofit with a vision to do just that. And Gary, you know, on your website, you have a quote from your son that reads, you know, someday people realize that I am not a bad person, that I have a disease and I'm trying my hardest. And that really speaks to this idea of this addiction to opioids is a disease. And do you think that part of the reason, you know, this disease has run so rampant in the country is that people haven't accepted or don't know about the fact that addiction is a disease and not simply a cascade of decisions? At 100%, absolutely. That speaks to stigma. And that is the foundation of everything. First of all, let me change one thing. Not that it's a disease, that it's a treatable disease. Mm. Because 75% of the people in this country don't think it's a disease. Mm. But 51% of the country are unwilling because they don't think it's treatable, are unwilling to be friends, coworkers, neighbor, or have someone marry into your family who have a, known to have a substance use disorder and addiction. But isn't that, I mean, that's, that, that goes against the numbers that, are, that you guys have presented because I think the numbers 22 million Americans struggle with some type of addiction. So you may think you don't want that in your life, but you likely have it in your life in some capacity. But you capacity. likely have it, absolutely. And I kind of get that. I don't agree with it, but I can understand it. They don't want it near their, they don't want it in their yes. life. Yeah. So just take Johnny, Susie, anyone. They became addicted to opioids when they were 21 or 22. Maybe it was an injury and a doctor gave them 30, 30 days of Oxycontin. Maybe they traded up from marijuana and 
took a pill and then became addicted. Mm -hmm. Are they going to tell anybody? Probably not. If, if they, they haven't read that survey about Americans, but they feel it. Mm. And are they going to tell anybody? No, because I don't want anybody to know. Are they going to go to treatment? No, because I don't want anybody to find out. Mm. Um, you know, a national survey, it's done by the government every year. Almost 20% of people who don't go to treatment listed not, want, not wanting their friends and family to know is a reason why they didn't go to treatment. The sense of or this idea of hopelessness and not believing that there is a treatment, I think maybe gives people a ticket to just, just dismiss and dehumanize and not think of those who are struggling with addiction. So can we talk a little bit about how those with these opioid addictions can get better? It's really, it's a great question and it really isn't that complicated. If you've become addicted to opioids, there's, there's a few key things. There is reducing the shame and stigma to start. Number two, and everything comes off of that. Mm -hmm. And then number two, let's get the person treatment that's based on science. The, the, the research exists. This can be treated. And so getting this into our healthcare system, into medical schools, into treatment programs, just like anything else. And then Johnny or Susie lives fine. They're treated with science and there's no shame or stigma that they feel back to the, the quote you mentioned about my son. You know, dad, I wish people would just understand I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person with a difficult disease and I'm trying my hardest. That's what he said. Mm. That just rips my heart out. It yeah. really does. Yeah. Do you think there's something in this pairing of mental health and and a disease that can be treated and, and the, just the level of addiction we have in this country that should be part of the conversation that's not? Absolutely. I mean, think of all the attention that's been given to COVID. And there'll be 225,000 people that die this year related to the addiction to drugs and alcohol. If you take COVID out, which will hopefully be way down on the list shortly, it's the third, addiction is the third largest cause of death in this country behind heart and cancer. And so all the attention we're giving to heart and cancer, and then recently COVID, if we gave that attention to this disease, we would cut it in half instantly. And imagine what it would do for the stigma. Right. And we're seeing a lot of this opioid epidemic really play out in the courts. You know, there's all these suits between states and the Sackler family. Mm -hmm. We've seen, you know, documentaries, Dope Stick, you know, kind of show this story in, in a film form. Where does the responsibility really like lie here? And what can we do as individuals to, to get at this epidemic that seems so national and big? Is there anything we can do, you know, on an individual level? Yes. Um, first of all, I don't look backward at who's responsible. It doesn't almost almost doesn't matter. Mm. I mean, it matters and let the courts take care of that. Um, let's go forward to the second part of your question. It's ending shame and stigma. This is a treatable disease. And let's bring it into the healthcare and treat it like any other disease. And let's get the resources appropriate to the size of the issue. It's really that simple. Gary Mendel, 
who is the founder and CEO of Shatterproof. Uh, thank you, thank you for your time today. And hopefully this informs our listeners and we can help reduce that stigma. Thank you so much, both of you. Appreciate it. Thank you. And before we go, we've got to take some time to uh, do a food review, Megan. <laughs> I can't believe we're doing this, but I am very excited. It is the Old Bay seasoned goldfish limited edition. L- and that's right, we ordered it. It's off true. The online. Yep, limited dish. Here it is. It's sealed. Look, no opening. So live for this podcast, we're gonna try it out and let yeah. you know what you think. You have to check out this video on social because we're gonna share it for you guys. Yes, it's true. I'm worried they're gonna be over flavored. You think so? I don't know. Sometimes a little. Listen, I am a huge Old Bay fan. Oh my gosh, they smell so good. Oh, they do. I think it can taste the difference at restaurants when they try to make their own versus using the the ridge. Yeah, I'm, that's, we're going to taste it live here, and uh, we're going to tell you what you think. So, Megan, go for it. Go for it. Mm, what do you think? They're good. They're, they're really good. They're really good? Let's see. They're slightly, I mean, like, I want to say slightly more seasoning, but I'm usually an under-seasoned kind of gal. No, I think you're right. The paprika is there, for sure. <laughs> um, but I, I didn't could, know you were going to break it down I, by ingredient. <laughs> I could use more, yeah. I also wish that there was more cheese. If mm. they mixed these with the, like, cheesy flavor blast... Divine. I think that would be literally perfect. Um, but still a really good snack. But I actually ended up getting four <laughs> because I thought you were only getting one. And when you're buying it, you get two. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I'm stocked. I'm ready for the summer. Good for you because these are delicious. Uh-huh. These are delicious. Well, there you have it, folks. The <laughs> uh, Goldfish Old Bay Limited Edition crackers are fire. They're mm-hmm. pretty good. Oh, my God. Yeah. Maybe bring some additional Old Bay seasoning with you, though, and just pour that in. Honestly, that's probably what I'm going to do with these. Ooh, these would be good on like a salad. Yeah, yeah. On top of a curry soup, or tomato soup. In a bowl yeah, by themselves. That too. <laughs> well, enjoy. And that does it for us today. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for the DMV download. We're sponsored by Steamfitters Local 602. Our managing editor is Craig Schwab, and our music is by Real World. Give us a review and rate our show if you get the chance. You can also follow us on our social media channels where we're posting every day. You can find out more about the show and become one of our VIP listeners at dmvdownload.com. The DMV Download is a product of WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, 103.9 FM in Frederick, online at wtop.com and on the WTOP News app. Have a great weekend, guys.